0: Listening to the Retro Guardian. Okay, now
1: what?
0: Buckle up. Here, here. Have you ever bought or rented a videotape that wasn't quite right? <laughs> Groovy. Little hands says it's time to rock and roll. Bring the noise. Hasta la vista, baby. Retro
1: Guardians. Good afternoon, everybody. You are tuning in to another episode of Retro Guardians, all things retro, 80s, 90s, maybe even a bit earlier than that. Movies, TV, pop culture, music, computer games, you name it.
0: And anything that makes you feel good.
1: (laughs) If it's retro, it's nostalgic, it's us,
0: it's positive.
1: Absolutely, Um, and while we've got you, if you haven't already liked, followed, shared our Facebook page, please do so. Retro Guardians podcast, lots of good stuff on there. I'm Ben. I'm Jay, and welcome. So today we're going to be talking about um, three movies. Specifically,
0: Um, remakes of films from the 1950s that most people feel fondly
1: and believe are better than the 1950s versions. Yeah, and most people probably don't even know about the 50s versions. No, I don't think that's true. I certainly didn't. So we've got three of them. The first one being The Fly, 1986, written uh, and directed by David Cronenberg. We've got The Blob, which was a uh, 1988 film, I believe. Um, Written by
0: written by, if I believe, uh, Frank Darabont, who most people would now know, went on to co-write and direct The Shawshank Redemption. And I also think the director, Chuck Russell, and him wrote the their earlier film, co-wrote, sorry, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, which was their beginning film. And then th- because of the success of that, they got to make the blob straight after that. Hmm. But the third one is the one that you talk to any hardcore horror fan, and I think we're in that list, that when you name the best films of the early 80s, this one is always in there. The Thing. John Carpenter's Masterpiece.
1: Yep. So um, tell us a bit about the three, Ben. Which one perhaps should we start with? Maybe the we We'll
0: start backwards. Actually, we'll start oh, okay. backwards. Okay? Sure. We'll, we'll do the blob and work our way to the Thing.
1: So you'll do a bit of a comparison between the 50s and the 80s version, or how do you want
0: to I'll do a bit of both. It.
1: Awesome. I'll do a bit of both. Well, let's hear just it. Just
0: explain to people, okay? The, the original Blob was made in, I think, 1958, and it mm. was actually Steve McQueen's first big, big role. I mean, he was struggling for a few years before that, before this, and I believe just after this he got his – uh, his Western show Wanted Dead or Alive, which put him on the, the map and it led to everything that we know McQueen for. But what was interesting, and I've heard this from his biography, it was a mom and pa production. It was mm. a family that put the money up, this and that, and they gave him the option of a payment up front or a piece of the action. He chose payment up front. He later regretted it because it was one of the most successfully financial films of that period. It definitely came into the whole teenage horror vamp Thing of the late 50s. Mm. It was the beginning of that that movies like uh, companies like AIP, who I mentioned earlier with the Amityville film, they jumped on that wagon straight away. Uh, Roger Corman was a big director of that period. He knew that the teenage market was the beginning of that's where you want to aim your films at but the majors weren't doing that. So they did this little film. Unfortunately, a lot of the effects of that film are specifically, you can tell it's almost like Jell-O and things like that yeah. in certain scenes and that.
1: Primitive. It,
0: it yes so fast forward 30 years later sadly mcqueen died in 1980 both chuck and frank said if he was alive they would ask him to be in the film they did say this out loud um it definitely connected into that 1980s vibe of uh the cold war it definitely connected into that very pro-american vibe of that period that small town mentality that was all awesome and uh, I definitely think you actually felt for the characters in that film. I think it was Kevin Dillon's first big major role. He'd been in Platoon before that, which may be two years earlier. And he sort of played the sort of um, the, uh, what would be the the pariah of oh, town, okay. you know. But, yep. you know uh, he's definitely sort of a punk, as the sheriff says. But uh, he's definitely one that witnesses the whole proceedings that lead into the blob becoming the blob and it just proceeds from there. Um, They definitely tapped into the whole horror thing of the 80s about kids, teenagers specifically in certain situations where it was sex or drinking or or they actually play into the cliche really well with like kids going sneaking off to a horror film and then the horror comes into the cinema Mm. And I don't think you could get away with some of that now because they actually do show some kids getting killed in this film. Not gratuitously, it, this thing, the, I think of the blob very similar to the Jaws. It just eats and kills whatever gets in its path. Yeah. So they had to show that this thing doesn't care if it's kids or not, you know. Well, the now, actual I,
1: 1950s um, theatrical poster says that the blob mm-hmm. is indescribable, indestructible, and nothing can stop it.
0: I do love know. the marketing of those periods. I really do. I mean, you could compare them to nowadays, even in the 1980s and that too. And you just have Classics. to sit there and think, marketing had to do everything. Cause that's mm. you know, you got to bring p- seats and in, uh, people into seats and stuff. So yeah. how do you grab the audience? And I definitely yep. think poster art was one of them. And I think that yep. that le- definitely came up a, a notch because of video in the 80s. I definitely mm. you and I talked about this definitely and. I think it had a very interesting um, – I don't – see if you can find the original poster for the 80s version, Jay.
1: Yeah, I've got a copy um, up on my screen right now, yeah.
0: Yeah, it, is it the, the, the hands like this inside the blob or something? Yeah,
1: inside the purple, uh, like, jello stuff, yeah.
0: Yeah, that was uh, the DVD release cover too, which I think I've got here somewhere. I just can't find it at the, the very moment. Um, just a quick thing, Chuck Russell had directed the third Nightmare on Elm Street, and at the time, that was the most financially successful uh, nightmare at the time. And he pretty much was given carte blanche for his next film, and he and Frank decided to do the blob. Hmm. And at the time, I think it was Tony Gardner that did the effects on that, and Tony would later work on Darkman. I think he even did a little bit of work on Army of Darkness too, Jay and i i look at some of the effects in that even now even for its day i'm like like the sort of melting body look that they had for a lot of the effects and that just makes me wonder how they did that too they also did something very clever with that one with also the climax i mean they say not seeing it fully until like the whole thing until as we got closer to the end of the film and the reason Mm. is, is it starts very small But the more people it absorbs,
1: the bigger bigger. it
0: gets. And they definitely played into a lot of things of that period with um, the time period. But the other thing, too, they had a good cast. There was a really good cast of character actors. And I know for a fact Frank used a couple of them in Shawshank and Green Mile's trade afterwards. Mm. Um, Can you bring up the cast list and tell me who played the sheriff?
1: In uh, the, the 1988 blob? Yes, please. We have uh, the sheriff. Jeffrey. The sheriff. Um, I don't know what his name was. Oh, Sheriff Herb Geller, played by Jeffrey DeMunn.
0: Jeffrey was in all three of Frank's horror, uh, Stephen King adaptions. He was mm. in the Shawshank at the start as a lawyer. He was one of the guards. I think he played Harry in the Green Mile. I bl- believe he was in um, The Mist. But I also know for a fact that most major audience members would know this. He was in the first two seasons of The Walking Dead. Frank oh. Darabon actually got that show going, and he used a lot of actors that he knew for some of those supporting actors. And Jeffrey was one of them. And also, I think his deputy, uh, same thing, I can't off the top of my head remember him, but I believe he was also a guard in Shawshank, and I also believe he was in Romacop. Okay. And he was also in ER for a while. I can't think of his name off the top of my head, sorry. Um, hmm. You probably see him there somewhere uh, as one of the deputies. Um,
1: I just try off top, can't no remember his. his listed But there's a Colonel Har- Hargus, but um, no, it's uh, and it's interesting in the analysis. They talk about how it was a conspiracy theory film about you know biological weapons created by secret government agencies and stuff. And
0: Whereas uh, in the original, it was just it was from outer space.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. that's the thing. I think they definitely.
0: I definitely think they connected into the era. They went, yep, okay, yep. this is what's going on. Let's tap into that. But within yep. the next two years, it was over. So it, it's a, by the end by 1991. In that, you know, that wouldn't have worked mm,
1: but
0: no. for that time period. It definitely did. And Candy Clark, who most people might remember from the original American Graffiti and Blue Thunder with Roy Scheider, she has a very memorable scene in a phone booth. She plays one the the, the yep. cook waitress at the local diner and. There's a scene when she tries to ring for the sheriff, and the blob consumes around the the uh, telephone boxes for anyone born after 2000. That's what we used to ring on when we (laughs) didn't have mobile phones. (laughs) And there's a great moment when she gets through, and they don't know where the sheriff is. And then she looks. We see that him actually swim up through the blob, half melted next to the the thing, and it was really gory and it worked really well. I remember old payphones.
1: Actually, somebody sent me a picture of one the other day, one of the old green payphones is still uh, on the wall at a hospital in uh, Melbourne. It doesn't work, obviously, but it's still there. (laughs) The same ones that we um, caused trouble on as kids. You remember the old prank I used to do? Dial 199 and hang up and you run away and a couple of minutes later it starts ringing and you get some stranger walking past and they're like, why is the payphone ringing? Anyway, off track, but good old... Uh,
0: uh, No, but I did it once (laughs) after you told me to do it and the weirdest thing happened once, Jay change come out of it. Yeah. I walked away and went, I heard a ting and I went, what was that? And I went back in. It was about $3 in coins. There I went, you go. I don't care, I'll take that. It's never happened to me since. After that, it was just a one-off. Well, yeah. the next one is definitely another memorable one. And I think in a sense, it was the beginning of Jeff Goldblum's career. It was the first major role he did as uh, the leading man, actor, and first credit, I think, too. And that was uh, Cronenberg's The Fly. Mm-hmm. Um, Mel Brooks had a production deal with 20th Century Fox and he'd also produce um, David Lynch's Elephant Man and Mel was looking to do something else now Mel Brooks for most people would know for doing comedy Mel's production company he wanted to do different things he didn't want to just do company so he put his feelers out and one of the things came up was that Fox actually owned the original rights to the fly from the late 1950s which starred David Henson and Vincent Price same thing again it wasn't quite 30 years but it was close to it Mm. I think it was um, maybe 59. It might have been 58. I'm 58. Not 58. Yeah. Yeah, and this was 86, so it was 28 yeah. years. Yeah. David at the time had done a lot of his body horror. That's what he's sort of the king of. Mm. He'd done Scanners. He'd done The Brood. He'd done Shivers. Yeah. i uh, had done Videodrome. I think that made it – and he'd done Dead Zone, and Dead Zone's actually a departure for him because it's not gory but it proved to people that David could do direct other kinds of films. And I think that was one of the films that Mel took a look at and went, well, if he can do other things, why aren't we getting for this? And I know David was originally up to be directing the original Total Recall when it was with Dino De Laurentiis before Dino went bankrupt. So he was originally going to have to move to Rome to shoot it there. And then the production fell apart and then he moved back and he needed a job. He 20th century heard and reached out and said, how would you like to do this? And he proposed a concept that became what the basis for the fly became. One of the interesting things with the teleportation pods, he actually based it on an engine on one of his motorcycles. The whole yeah, rim's got that
1: vibe there. to it, doesn't it? Looks and it like an engine. Yeah. It
0: works. It actually works. It does. And at the time, the other thing that I quickly got to tell you this is two years before Rupert Murdoch bought 20th Century Fox. So it was like a two year period where they were in between. The major companies that were owning it mm. and at the time i think it was larry gordon that was running that company for two years and i think predator was also done in that period too where it was before a major studio had a say like the majors had who owners had a say so they quickly snuck in some films that they didn't have a say in and it's like just make these now and larry did that and larry said to them about jeff's casting was he's not the guy i'd go for but it's your film go for it Hmm. So a lot of people think it's a metaphor for AIDS, what the film is actually about. So just okay. a quick uh, insight to anyone that hasn't seen it. It's about scientists that's created a teleportation pod, but he hasn't quite figured out how to teleport organic things. In, inorganic's fine, organic, no go. And he's trying to figure out a way to do it. He has a, a, a reporter that's become interested in him and eventually becomes a romantic interest, and she's sort of documenting what he's doing. And one night, in in a bit of a, a drunken state, he decides, after doing it successfully with a with a monkey, I think a bamboo actually, he decides to do it on himself. But without realising, when he does it, that a fly actually gets into mm-hmm. the pot as he's doing it, and yeah. the computer can't tell the difference between the both, and it combines them on a genetic level. Now at first he's very energetic. He's got a lot of energy. He's eating more. He's doing, but he's slowly transforming
1: into the grundle fly.
0: That's correct. And it's a slow transformation.
1: Mm. Now,
0: Chris Wales did the makeup effects for this film. Chris is most famous just before this for doing the Gremlins. That's what Chris is most famous for doing. And originally they were offered him another movie and Gremlins 2, which at the time was in production. And he told his crew, we can do those or we can do this. They had three months to do the effects for the fly. And they all went, we want to do the fly. So they went with that one, and the rest is history. As a result, uh, Chris won an Oscar. I think it was the only Oscar he ever won. But that transformation of uh, Jeff into Brundlefly is definitely one of those things of that period that stand out to me. They used a lot of forced perspective sets where you can actually walk on the walls and stuff, and I saw how they did. It's a rotating room situation again, Jay. Mm. And um, the... Um, the first time when he figures out what's actually happened is still one of the most memorable scenes in the movie because there's a scene with his fingernails mm. starting to come off and Gross. Pass And he's like, what's happening to me? And he's got gloves on going through the system and that's when he finds out about the fly. Mm. And a lot of people, like I said, have thought it was AIDS. I don't think it's AIDS. I think he's uh, Cronenberg said out loud it's not AIDS. It's watching someone die and you can't do anything about it. And you and I have both known we've had those experiences. That it's just you feel so helpless for these people and you just mm. can't, you know, you can't do anything. And I think that's what it is, the film is about. And mm. that in that situation, you're not thinking rationally. You're not thinking No. How normally think. And I think that all plays into it as well.
1: It's, I guess, a, yeah, a cultural metaphor, as they describe it, for uh, a general analogy for disease itself. So whether it be AIDS or terminal conditions like cancer uh, or aging uh, in general, I, just getting old, you know?
0: Yeah, um, there's a scene in the film as he becomes less human that he keeps body parts of himself in the, the, the kitchen cabinet. And I think that also harkens back to sickness, that that's the first place we go to when, like, what what's wrong? Mm. You know, I, as I've told you, I've had just getting over cold this week. I've been going to the bathroom first thing every morning to <laughs> spit up a few things, and even I'm thinking that's the first place you find out about sickness.
1: Yeah, true, true, yep.
0: It's a very memorable performance by both Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. Mm. Um, John, I don't know if I can say John's last name, John Getz. It's G-E-T-Z. I don't know if I'm saying him correctly, Jay. Getz. He plays um, Gina's John boss. Getz. Yeah. yeah, I did, Sarah. Uh, John's popped up in a few films. I think he was in the Coen brothers' first film, um, Blood Simple, and I think he was even in Zodiac for David Fincher. And John's mm-hmm. always sort of like um, a clerk, administration-type guy. I think he was in Men at Work with uh, Emilio and Charlie Sheen. And I think he was in recently Bosch, which I saw him in recently. He looks exactly the same still. But John same. sort of plays her boss, ex-lover, and he gets involved too. And... Um, they did do a sp- spin off sequel to this movie, which was not great. Um, Chris Wales, the makeup effects guy of this one, he directed that. And John was the only actor they could get back from that film, not, uh, Jeff and Gina, and that no one else would come back for. But it's definitely one of Cronenberg's standout films. And I definitely think it pushed David into a bigger realm. That's the film you talk to most. Even the, his earlier work, most people discovered his early work after the fly. I think the fly was the big film, like with Carpenter. Most mm. people saw the thing, and then they went back and seen his earlier films as a result.
1: Because you so have the, the 1958 unit. version. Was that also about a teleporting device? Like I it wouldn't have was. thought technology was really a big. Um, yeah,
0: David Henson, right The difference in that version is it, it it removes his head and his hand. Right. So the head yeah. is a head, head yeah. of a fly and the hand is a claw, but the fly actually has the head of a human, and it, <laughs> okay. it's a very famous scene, like, help me, help. That's yeah, that's where okay. that comes from. Right, Vincent right. Price, actually, in the original, is not a bad bad guy. That's the other surprising thing. Vincent's the brother of the main character. And, I mean, definitely same thing. It definitely plays into those bugs fears and those sort of commie fears of the of the 1950s. Yeah, I bet. But I actually don't mind that 1958 version. I actually, I haven't watched it in a long time, but I didn't mind it even now. Some of either. those Just, old ones
1: are pretty good, yeah. Like the Invisible Man, the original about, Invisible Man. I love that one.
0: Oh, the 33 version?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I love it too. It's my favourite James Whale movie.
1: Hmm.
0: He does a really good job. Um, I definitely think films play into whatever is going on in the culture and the society at that very time. And there was still that fear of the atom, and what, what if we, you know, all the bug films of that time, Jay. You got mm. Transler and, and them, and yeah, yeah. all those kind of films. Radiation getting on the wrong things, and yeah. do we have a right to sort of say we're gods and all that? And it plays into all that, you know, and all the. But when you screw up, and the consequences of that, it come back at you full pelt. Mm. All mm. right, I definitely think we've got to talk about the last one. One more to and go. The last Last one is definitely the one everyone talks about, and that is John Carpenter's. The thing, yeah. It had been a film version in the early nineteen fifties, I think nineteen fifty one. It had been um, Ken Toby was a very famous sci fi um, dramatic actor. He was in it. It's the film I knew him from. Ken did a few uh, appearances in some of Joe Dante's movies during the um, the nineteen eighties. That's where I knew Ken from the most. He was in the Howling Jane. I think he was in a few of the other Joe's movies, and then. Carpenter gets offered to work on a film for a major studio and he said out loud that the original black-and-white film is one of his all-time favourite films. By the way, it was actually The Thing was actually played by James Arness in his pre-Gunsmoke uh, role. Gunsmoke's what he's most famous for. Well, and um, John's such a big fan of it, he, he just thought he couldn't touch it. So John went the opposite direction with this film. It was based on a short story called Who Goes There? And in the original Who Goes There, the thing can actually imitate. It can actually look like anyone or anything. Mm. They couldn't do that, obviously, in the 1950s. He was more like Frankenstein.
1: Yeah, so was the one from the 1950s referred to as the thing from another world? Correct. Or is that It it, it is, okay, same one. Yeah,
0: and it was produced by uh, Howard Hawks. Christian, I can't say his last name, it starts with N, uh, directed it. That's it. And um, John is like, he's named that up there as one of his all time favorites. Okay. But he said in an interview that he couldn't say no to doing the remake because he had to get into the majors and it was the only way he's going to get there. So he mm-hmm. went a different direction. And he said also was to bring the monster out into the light. Yeah. And John had made The Fog in 1980, which we both talked about earlier. Seen as seen Now, when he was on that, um, Dean Cundy, the DP, had worked with this guy called Rob Boteen. Rob, at the time, I think he was 20, 21. And he worked with him as a teenager on several low budget productions. Rob burst into an interview saying he was a big, big fan. And it's like, who's this guy? And Dean's like, oh, oh, this is Rob. I was going to introduce him. And while I'm planning the, uh, the the fog, and he's like, Have you got any scary characters? You know, something quiet, covered in makeup. I'd love to play it. And John goes, stand up. And he stood up, and he was expecting him to say, get out. And John sized him up, went, You got the part. The makeup has to look like this, this, and this. Go to work. He actually plays uh, the main ghost at the end in the in the in the um, in the church scene. That's actually Rob in the full seaweed makeup effect. So right. when he got offered the job to do that, and Rob also worked on the Howling, by the way, he did the mm. makeup effects in the Howling. He said, "Why don't we go with this kid?" Because they couldn't afford Rick, and they couldn't afford the others at the time. Because makeup effects artists, especially post American Werewolf in London, their prices surged. So they went with Rob. And Rob's approach, along with – he actually worked with uh, a comic book artist named Mike Plug. Mike Ploog and him come up with the concept of the thing could look like anything. So crab legs, tentacles, all that, That that's where all that came from. Mm. And then they took the, the designs to Carpenter and he pretty much approved. He's like, can you do this? He's like, well, we're going to try. Both team and Carpenter have both said it was the longest production at that time they ever worked on. They were on that for over a year. I mean, that's a long time. Carpenter said that pr- productions for him were usually nine to six to nine months. So that's how long they were on the thing for.
1: Yeah, so and and it was like that ugly monster with, you know, the long neck and the crab arms and the teeth. That was the thing, wasn't it?
0: But the the, the thing about that movie that didn't get the credit, because everyone complained about the violence and the grotesqueness, mm. the paranoia.
1: Mm. Can
0: you really trust? It's like you and me. Could I really trust you? in that situation that's really you or could you really trust it was me
1: or was it really that's, the thing yeah, and...
0: really uh, you were really an alien and yeah. they really played that that paranoia angle more that, that i think when it got researched later in, in like 2000 everyone went this works so well because of that but at the yeah. time the other problem it had was it came out the same time as et ah everyone wanted been. the cute cuddly polite. <laughs> Glowy alien, and there's this thing
1: that's just ugly,
0: vicious, and dangerous. Like, okay, we're in trouble. And the other film that suffered was Blade Runner, which everyone talks about. Those two films were so dark and depressive. And they both come out when E.T. comes out, and it just killed both of them. But in and the thing in just there,
1: barely made its money back too, didn't it?
0: Yeah, and Blade Runner was the same, but give it 20 years, now those movies, Jay, are up there at the top with most critics and fans. Mm. They were appreciated more later and like they were ahead of their time.
1: Which doesn't make, make even the said, directors and that money, does it? But, uh, no, it hurts company. careers for a while. Yeah. So
0: John was supposed to make Firestarter next because yep. the thing tanked. It was taken off him and given to Mark Lester. John had to say yes to any job that came along. So you would love this, just happened to be a, a Stephen King movie that you just happened to be a fan of,
1: mm.
0: or Christine. So as a result, he got Christine, and he just said, "I needed a job. I needed to work." Yeah. But yeah. he said it years later. There's so many people that come up to go, "Oh, I love the thing." That to this day, I saw it in 1988. Jay, my mother, then neighbour. Had all the grandkids over, and they'd left all these videos over. And my, she said to my mum, "You want to watch any of these before I'm taking them back?" And mum said, well, "What <laughs> do you got?" She says, "Well, there's one here with Kurt Russell called The Thing." Mum went, "I'll watch that." <laughs> and at the time, I just walked in and out. It's just the snow stuff when the guys yeah. are in the snow and they're wondering out what this dog is about and all this. But then I walked in and out of the room, and I happened to walk in on one of the worst moments to ever walk in on. And to this day, it's my timing. It's the Charlie Hallahan scene with the clear. And to this day, I still remember the whole sequence. So when Mew and I watched it years later, I'm like, I have seen this. It's been a long time. I remember the whole sequence. Wow. And to this, and sadly, Charlie Hallahan died in the early 2000s in a car accident. And Charlie did some films in the late 90s, like I think he was in Dante's Peak, and he was also in uh, Executive Decisions with Kurt as well. And he did in an interview just before he died, he said. I do a lot of traveling in the world. And to this day, I still get people that come up to me on the street going, that scene, that scene to this day. And I'm like, he said 20 years later and people still remember that scene and how they did it too. And and to this day, you ask any makeup effects artist, they always have that film on a high pedestal. Yeah. And even just recently, I saw a doco of one of the guys and they're like, it can't be touched. I don't care what anyone says. And it hurt Rob for a little bit too, but Rob got a lot of work after that. He worked mm. with uh, Ridley Scott on Legend, and then he did Robocop straight after that with Paul Verhoeven, and worked with Paul again on Total Recall, which got him an Oscar, which then led to him working on several of David Finch's movies. But all three of those films were pioneers in one way or another, and the makeup effects were definitely that. And I think, and hopefully, even to this day, because of the research of video and DVD, they'll never be forgotten. Mm. Anything else you want to add to it, Jay?
1: not not add but i do have a question so with the um um i guess the 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 old 50s version and the new 80s versions of those three films if our listeners haven't seen either of them um would you recommend that they watch the old ones first and then the remakes of any of them or all of them
0: i'd check them out just to comparison them but but here's the thing pardon the pun um here's the thing uh they're not bad movies, even the 50s versions. They Actually, just like I said, it's just dated in a couple of little areas. You can mm. tell it's the 1950s, for one. Um, in the case of the, uh, the, the the thing from Another World, it is in black and white. I know certain people don't like black and white because it's black and white. But for sense of purposes of the period and what they're talking about, I would tell people to check, check them out. Um, I know you can find most of them. They're still on DVD. In that, um, just just found these earlier, Jay. Mm. So there's my copy of Cronenberg's The Fly. It's on DVD. Yep. Um, you can tell it's R-rated. I mean, that's yeah. it, it's definitely a rating I still agree with to this yeah. day. Yep. I actually found this earlier. Now, this is Carpenter's The Thing. Yep. It is M. I do believe when they re-released it on Blu-ray, I think they changed the rating to MA okay here in australia i think they now that's another thing that the, once again pardon the pun a lot of films sometimes when they were released on dvd their ratings got changed it either went up a rating yeah. or went down one and that's something i do agree with that when we brought the ma rating into australia that certain r-rated movies aren't r-rated they're ma mm. and certain so, so m movies should be ma so that's yep. one thing mm. i agree with but yeah all three now I do think are appreciated for that nostalgic yeah. thing we were talking about with the 80s. And I definitely think in the case of The Thing and the Fly, especially the effects and what they're talking about stand out to this day too with performances as well. So, yes. no, I definitely recommend people to check it out. It's it's up to their own judgment, but I do stand by all three of the 80s versions. And I definitely say check out the, the 50s just for the sake and nostalgic yeah. sakes too.
1: I'm, I'm going to go watch the original thing after this, I think. It's a good maybe film. the blob I actually no i'll change that i'll watch the original blob with mcqueen well,
0: well i definitely say to check them both out mm. and definitely check out the fly with vincent price and david henson
1: definitely. david henson
0: by the way is uh, jodie foster's uh father-in-law he did he only died not too recently and he was our favorite felix slider from two of the bond films uh live and let oh, die yeah. and license yep. to kill i think he was 92 when he went so he wow. got up Definitely worth checking out, folks. Well, I Definitely. hope everyone's enjoyed this week's episode. I know I have. I hope you thanks have, been.
1: Jay. Oh, it's been a good one. Uh, some good movies there to add to the list. So thanks for listening. Thanks for talking. And, um, yeah, we'll catch you all again soon. I
0: hope you enjoy us and keep listening to us. And as Jay said, we've got a new website, uh, Plug Plug.
1: Yeah, an all Retro- Facebook page as well. So, yep the uh, retro guardians podcast on facebook it'd be good to interact with our listeners on there so um yeah feel free to like follow share all that sort of stuff um you can listen to the podcasts uh, they're linked through the facebook page as well so if you're a new listener go back and have a look at our previous episodes um got some good content there to catch up on
0: hopefully hopefully there's something in there that tickles your fancy and hopefully we hear from you soon and if you keep hearing us we're happy to keep talking I'm Ben.
1: I'm Jay. Thanks for listening. See you all. Retro Guardians.